0: Log Radio.
1: Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts, offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas, or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. You know, as a reporter, I've covered many fires, and I've marveled at the management and skill of the firemen in, in directing uh, efforts by their leaders to get at the fire quickly and put it out. So it was very interesting when across my desk came a new book, Light a Fire Under Your Business. I thought it was funny. And when I found out that I loved the title, and when I found out it was written by an ex-Battalion Chief, I had to have him on the program. Uh, Tom Pandola uh, has written a fascinating book. He's also, uh, after retiring, a successful manager. And, and Tom, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you, Don, for having me. I appreciate being here.
1: Well, first, as we ask all our guests, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and your personal background before we get into anything else.
2: Well, I grew up in Los Angeles, uh, and that was a long time ago. And I spent um, 25 years on the Los Angeles City Fire Department, worked my way up from the fire academy as a firefighter and up through to uh, battalion chief and held different uh, assignments around the city. And And I like to say that, you know, typically in Los Angeles, we we handle fires, floods, riots, earthquakes, and more. And um, then after my fire service career had ended, I went on to work in different business positions and leadership positions. And um, that kind of leads up to where the book came from. I'm married and I have three grown uh, sons.
1: Oh, And uh, are you currently in business?
2: Yes, I, I'm currently a uh, director of communications for a uh the largest non-profit air ambulance program, uh, in California.
1: Well, now let's talk about your book, which, uh, I went through and I saw a lot of very interesting things. What's the main premise of your management style and how does it apply to small business?
2: Well, I think that the main thing is I, I kind of have to go back to how it all happened. So, um, my co-author, Jim Bird, and, and I both worked in the fire service, and he was a captain at, at one point. And then uh, we after our fire service careers were over, uh, he he had actually been working part-time in the Fortune 500 doing certain things for a particular company and then went on to work for a couple more. I had gone on to work in uh, some leadership training and then got into working into uh, – the air ambulance industry in different different positions in business, uh, uh, d- regional director, things like that. Now I'm a c- uh, communications director. And what we discovered was we kind of got together, and it was kind of by happenstance. We were talking about these post-firefighting jobs that we had, and we we had the same story, and that was that our, our supervisors uh, would treat us like we were doing something special or different and we were successful because of it. We started thinking, well, you know, the only thing we really came into this job with was our ingrained principles and thought process processes that we brought to it from the fire service. So we sat down, we were trying to figure out what is it that we're doing and that's the result is the book. And and basically we we talk about how how the fire service in general And you had mentioned earlier in the introduction you were talking about how firefighters have to respond to a variety of uh, situations and they need to be able to go to work right away, take care of the problem, and they don't ever give up until the problem's been solved one way or, or another. And so we started thinking about how does the fire service create a culture like that, and we really boil it down to having inspirational leadership, and a certain type of culture come together to really make that possible, and we were following those same type of principles, and we broke them, it broke it down into basically how do you improve your process, how do you empower your people, and when you do those two things, you're able to then transform your culture so that even when somebody leaves the organization, the culture continues on, and I think this is important for small business because it's actually important for all businesses, but Let's talk about small businesses. Let's say you might be a, a franchise owner and you've got two or three outlets. You can't be in all three places at once, so you have to make sure that you train your your on-site managers to be able to, <clears throat> pardon me, to be able to uh, always be looking for process improvement, know how to lead people so that they actually want to make a difference and do the job the way you want them to do it, even when no one's looking. And the book goes into how how you do those things and how we did it in the fire service and how my co-author and I both did it in business.
1: Well, you're saying that, but now give us some examples of how you – first, let's talk about process improvement. How do you do that?
2: Well, the first thing is, you know, in the book we talk about, you know, what I find – what I like about the book myself is that we we actually use real fire department experiences, stories from, from firefighting and other things that, that you know, illustrate these principles that we're trying to get across. And then we also tie in things that we've done in business or that, you know, we've actually done some consulting and, and coaching for business leaders and, and things that we were able to help them with uh, in that process. And so, for instance, the first thing you need to do do is really start off by training people the right way. You know, I've I've worked in a few businesses where I I showed up and they pointed to my office and I didn't get any more introduction into what I was supposed to be doing. I had to figure it out. Now, I I consider myself fortunate because I use the same principles I use in the fire service, and I I I, I go to work on those type of things. But if you train your people the right way, you not only teach them how to do the job, but you also teach them that, you know, that things like mission, vision, and values are important and should guide their thinking and their actions. And we go into depth on what is a a, a good mission statement for an organization. What is a good vision statement for an ag- organization? And what are the values that individuals will use to, to uh, make that vision a reality? <clears throat> and too many companies, I think, uh, a lot of what they do is they, they put a mission, vision, value statement together, but it's really aimed at their customers to make, make the customers get a feel-good uh, thought about how the company operates when, in fact, the people within the company don't even know what those statements say and they don't think about them you know, as they go about their daily routine. Firefighting is very different. Our mission basically is to save lives and protect property. And if you think about a mission statement like that, there's a lot in that very short little sentence. Save lives. It includes civilian it's civilian lives. It includes firefighters' lives. It even includes the lives of animals. And lives come first, and then property. And when I was a battalion chief, and I'd roll up on scene of a big emergency, I would have to. I, I knew that the first thing I need to do is tr- figure out how I can save the most lives. And sometimes it's not putting the ladder up to the guy hanging out of the window. It's first action is to put the fire out. 'Cause if I can put that fire out, now there's no more smoke being generated, the fire's not spreading, and that whole building full of people don't need to be rescued. And so as a battalion chief, I would use my mission statement to really get to the to the very heart and foundation of what I was trying to accomplish every time I rolled up on scene of a you know different different emergency. So so mission, vision and values is very very important and companies should really Take a hard look at, you know, what is what is your company in existence to accomplish? That that should be the heart of your mission. And then a vision has to come from, you know, you, the, the, the number one spot, what we're all trying to accomplish, but every individual in the company should know it so they know how they're going to contribute <clears throat> to making that vision a reality. And the individual values, I like to remind people that values should be Specific to a particular task or job within the company, you know, four or five nice values don't really mean much to everybody doing the same, If they're not all doing the same work. For instance, as a communication director, I ask my communication specialist, what are the values you bring to work every time you think you're at your best? I take those that information from them and we develop a set of values that we're all going to hold each other accountable for and as long as the people in leadership positions are inspiring others to make these things uh important to them they will be put, become part of the culture but it takes leadership to make that happen nothing nothing meaningful will ever last in any organization if leadership doesn't make it the priority
1: okay having said that give us an example of how leadership can do that.
2: Okay. Um, well, when I came into a particular position, I I asked the person who hired me, I said, well, what is a – I was called a program manager at the time, and I said, what does a, a successful program manager look like? And he rattled off a couple things. I thought, okay, I can do that. Well, when I got into the position, I realized that you know there hadn't been any leadership in in this particular work site for a while, and people really, really, they're dedicated people. They want to do a good job, but they're all going in different directions. There was no cohesive um, activity going on at all. And there was also some uh, personality conflicts and things like that because they didn't have a common purpose. So the first thing I did was the company did have a mission statement. I started saying, hey, what's the mission statement? Let's get back to what we're trying to accomplish here. And then I created a vision for my particular team, and that vision was how I wanted the place to look six or 12 months down the road and how we were going to operate and what we were going to be known for. And that that became the conversation as I went around starting to solve some of the problems I identified. And one of the things that we talk about is also something we call uh, CPR for business success, and it's not the CPR that you're thinking about, that you're thinking cardiopulmonary resuscitation probably. Uh, we use this, as, and it stands for three steps, command, plan, respond. And in the command step, the first thing you need to know is what is the situation? You need to uh, take a look, let's say I'm a brand new manager, I walk into a, a small business, or I'm a, uh, a brand new business owner, and I need to know what is the situation, and that that covers everything about that that organization, and what resources are available, what resources are at play and resources to me are things like people, things, money, and time and as you know, things, money, and time can be managed, but people they don't necessarily like to be managed they want to be they want to be led, they want to be inspired they want to they want to do the right thing, but it takes inspirational leadership to be able to define what is the right thing to do, even when I'm not standing here watching you. And so in the command step, you figure out what the situation is, what resources you have. You practice what I call two-way communication, which means you speak and then listen and then listen and then speak. You define success for improving the situation you've you've uh, accepted or uh, maybe it was just, you know, given to you. And then... Um, set and prioritize your goals to make that definition of success become reality, and then have this feeling of accountability. You own it. So what you've really done in taking command is you've created your own vision for a future that you want to develop from the current situation, uh, an improved future. And so I always say command is having vision. Command is what leadership does to create that vision. And then you create a plan, and the plan Uh, without going into great detail, all the stuff is in the book that I talk about here. But the plan is basically identifying the things that are standing between you and your current situation and that future vision you've you've developed for yourself. And then, you know, plans have a high, high success rate when they actually include all the things that stand in your way and how you're going to mitigate them. And we would do this all the time at, at emergencies. Regardless of what the emergency was, we had to figure out, what are the problems, and how are we going to handle them? And then we go to work on it and start assigning fire companies and, and uh, you know different uh, firefighting teams to take care of these different issues. And then the last thing is to respond. And the way I look at responding is, it's how does the culture of the organization respond to plans, respond as though their job matters, and I really think it boils down to how does leadership inspire people to understand that what they do is important, and why they do it to the best of their ability always matters to someone. And I ask people, who does it matter to? You know, who who who's going to benefit when you succeed and who's going to get hurt if you don't? And it's an interesting conversation to have one-on-one with people that, that report to you. And I've always been successful with these type of things. And, and my co-author, Jim Bird, he's also been successful in the Fortune 500. And all these type of things are, are covered in more detail in the book. What
1: made, what made you decide to write the book?
2: You know, um, it's interesting. I, I would have never even thought about doing something like this. And when Jim and I, we had worked together years ago at uh, a big station in Hollywood, uh, which is part of the Los Angeles City Fire Department, and we, we, you know, had a friendship basically. And then he went his separate way. I went my separate way. And one day, we just by happenstance, we were actually talking on the phone. And in discussing these things, we, you know, I, I said, you know what? I said, you know, I, I was teaching another, uh, I was working for another company that they did some adult training and leadership type things. And I said, all the things that we did on the fire department, all the things that we took for granted, they don't exist in a lot of organizations in business. And, and, and we, Jim and I worked in very different industries. He worked in the, um, you know, he, he, they were, they were, they were selling shampoo, you know, where he worked, and it was a big company, and I was working in the air medical industry by that time, and and we realized that the same principles applied, it just that for whatever reason the people that we were working with weren't always, you know, following such things, and we were able to within the sphere of our influence, follow the same process that we used in firefighting, and we applied it because you know what that That's how we were ingrained. That's how we were taught. I started in the fire department when I was twenty two years old and you know twenty five years later i i I think a certain way and I realized that you know the the same type of thinking that works for firefighters and handling emergencies and life threatening situations and all that it also worked in business even though you know it wasn't the same environment but it was just a matter of perspective that made it to made it made it work in the in the business side of things. So so we decided to write the book based on what we discovered what I would say almost by accident.
1: Well, um, in many cases that's that happens. But in your experience, what are the three key things that you would uh if if a small business owner came to you and said, uh, "Tom, out of all your all of your experience, what are the three things you learned that you'd most like to pass on?"
2: That's a good question. I would say probably, um, if I just had to break it down to three main things, I would say that whenever you have an issue that you have to deal with, first, look at your process. Is the process providing your people with what they need to get the job done? And if the answer is no, change your process. But if the process looks sound, then, then look at your people but it may not be that your people are are the problem it might just be that they don't feel empowered they don't feel like they have the authority or whatever to do certain things so look at you know how how are you empowering your people to get the job done the way you want them to get it done have you defined what success looks like things like that and then number 3 i'd say look at your look at your culture if if you don't de- develop the culture you want within your organization no matter how big or small it is it 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 will not it will not deliver what you're looking for and I'll, i'll just bring it down to things like trust respect you know mutual trust mutual respect for one another appreciation um you know what i call the the will do attitude that firefighters have you know there are there is there is such a thing of as developing within people this intrinsic desire to want to make a difference because they've been convinced that, that the the job's important and that's all part of the, the culture so i think if you really look at your process your people and your culture and you design it the way you you want to see it i think those would be the the main three things i would i would share with people and and in the book in light a fire under your business those are the actual the three parts of the book. Uh, I, we broke the book into three parts, and we talk about each of those areas.
1: Well, the name of
2: the, your book again is "Light a Fire Under Your Business: How to Build a Class One Corporate Culture Through Inspirational Leadership." And if people want to talk to you,
1: do you have a website?
2: Yes, um, they can contact me at um, T. Pandola. Actually, they they can they can just go to the website and there's a way to c- contact and it's it's alarm leadership dot com.
1: It's third. Spell it out. This is radio. It, it, it's
2: it's T H I R D A L A R M third alarm leadership L E A D E R S H I P. dot com.
1: Well, uh, Tom, it's real been a pleasure uh, talking with you today. Uh, It's fascinating. We want you to come back and talk more about this.
2: I'd love Uh, to. uh, Thank you again. All right, Don, I really appreciate the opportunity. Have a good day. You too. Thanks.
1: Our next guest. Please, uh, welcome aboard. Hello. Hello. How are you?
3: I'm great. How are you?
1: Is this. Uh, which one of the your two partners? Who's this? Uh, who is this person?
3: This is Allison Tolbert.
1: You know, Allison, welcome back to the program. Uh, you were Thank on you. A, a, about a year ago, if I recall correctly.
3: I was. I was.
1: And uh, I enjoyed it so much. You have a very interesting company, which I'd like to, uh, you to tell our audience about.
3: Absolutely yes, we are very unique. As we, um, my partner and I, we do walking food tours that are dedicated strictly to desserts and sweets. So we take you through Manhattan, the different neighborhoods in Manhattan, and introduce you to what we think is the sweeter side of New York City, and take you to about six, four to six different uh, tastings of what we think
1: are the greatest desserts here in New York I happened to run into one of your groups about uh, a month ago and uh, I I, I never saw a more enthusiastic group of walkers than you (laughs) in that particular group they were going from one sweet shop to another if I recall uh, if I'm right about that you do ice cream tours and different things if I recall correctly.
3: We do. We have um several different tours that are neighborhood based or we have dessert dessert centered ones such as our village to village cupcake crawl or our ice cream summer sundays tours which just are just getting launched um this come, upcoming weekend, so it's pretty exciting.
1: Well it, it is. And when we last talked, you were uh really just uh, in the nascent stages of your company, and you've managed to succeed at least for a year more. And I wanted today to talk about some of the lessons you've learned uh, over this period, because you, you have a very interesting marketplace, a very difficult one. Yet you you have succeeded. So, what are the lessons you've learned over the last uh, year or so?
3: You know, it's difficult for us because we, New York is such a, a constantly turning and ever-changing city. So we may love a location with all of our hearts and take all of our customers there, but all of a sudden they decide that either the lease is up or the location is no longer for them or it's just not working out for them as a company or business. So then we lose those vendors. So recently we've had that happen on one of our itineraries where we have lost uh, four of our vendors in the past year. Uh, So we at that point had to stop and sit back and instead of doing last minute changes and last minute decision making as far as getting the tours booked, we actually took the tours off the docket for about two weeks so that we could reevaluate what was in the area and do some more research and, and kind of make sure that we're still providing our customers with the absolute best possible experience. And it's difficult for us because we love these different uh, places. We love these different uh, neighborhood snacks and neighborhood treat places. But unfortunately, with all the big the big names and the big chains, it's difficult for them to stay alive. So it's kind of a goal for us to keep customers going back to those places and keep them open and running as long as possible. But it doesn't always work out for that. So one of our biggest um things that we've had to really do is stop and reevaluate, not just continue to go on with what's been working for years and and just flipping in new things that to keep it the best quality that may not keep the best quality, but sometimes you do have to take a step back, reevaluate, so that you're continuously providing the best quality for your customers.
1: And how has that worked out?
3: It worked out great. We've earned uh, new partnerships and new relationships with uh, companies that I've personally always wanted to have on the tour. Um, we had an, uh, a situation yesterday where there was a place that we've always wanted to have on a tour, and due to the, par- to the parade, we actually were unable to get to our other locations, but we were able to get to a location that we've wanted to go to for the past two years. So, um, you know, it's always great to have those back-up to their places in our pocket, and uh, to always know that they're there, and still know that you're providing your customers with the greatest
1: quality. Well, you, you've identified, you had a problem, you identify a solution, and, and uh, now now you're implementing it. Uh, anything else happened? How, uh, how about your employees? I remember you said you and your partner uh, did a lot of them, but you had some really dedicated employees. How have that? How have you maintained their enthusiasm?
3: I mean, our employees are are absolutely fantastic, and I think it's a matter of constantly making sure that they're they're provided for. You know, we've had instances where we have third party third parties who like to book our tour, and then something happened with their system, and our tour guide had already rearranged her uh, schedule, but now we were canceling on her, and you know that's not fair to our employees. So we always try and and, and keep the fairness of our employees, they're taking a lot of time out of their lives and their schedule to work for us, which we are ever appreciative of because we wouldn't be the company they are without them, without their quick thinking, without their knowledge of the city. Um, We recently just also had a little bit of a dessert party with our employees and our new new interns. And we just try and make sure that we keep our employees Continuously happy with the company that they're working for because there is a lot of competition out there. We have some great tour guides on our staff, and they're licensed and they're, a, you know, they're a hot commodity in this city. And we just want to make sure that we're continuously for providing them with the best experience that they have, so they can continue to work for us in the years to come.
1: Well, how long now have you been in existence?
3: We will be celebrating three years in October.
1: So. You're at the critical year where uh, uh, many family, uh, many uh, small businesses uh, suffer the uh, uh, pangs of growth. Uh, do you have any plans now to grow into other cities
3: or? Uh, we do. Or- I don't know if we're necessarily looking to grow to other cities. Our marketplace right now is really is in Manhattan, and you know the city is constantly changing and growing enough that we can always provide our customers with new and exciting itineraries and experiences, so what we really are trying to do is work closely with the city. Um, My partner recently uh, made a move outside of the city, but she's back and forth a lot, but she's working on the the company on a more full-time basis, so we definitely will be growing within the next year, uh, but we will kind of really stick to keeping our, our, our company and our business in the greater New York City area.
1: How how about you? Do you still like being an entrepreneur and a small business owner?
3: I love it. I think, you know, my whole life and existence since I started singing and dancing at age six has been to be an entrepreneur, um, whether it's promoting myself as a performer or pro- promoting myself as a business owner is kind of an our lives, and that's how Sarah and I started this business. We met on the national tour of Disney Beauty and the Beast of Performers, and we were looking for an outlet for ourselves as a way to uh, make money and do something that we continuously can continue to actually truly enjoy doing. And I think as an artist, you're automatically an entrepreneur because you're consistently, like I said, um, selling your art and your performance and who you are as a performer. So that the entrepreneur part and, and enjoying it is just kind of ingrained in who we are. So it's not much different from that as opposed to um, being a business owner as well.
1: If I recall correctly, aren't aren't you also an actress and, and dancer, or? Yeah, I, yes. Uh, yep, we are ha-
3: both performers, musical theater performers. Um,
1: are you still pursuing that as well?
3: Very much so. Well,
1: uh, would we have seen you in anything recently?
3: Uh, my most recent production I actually went out west to Portland, Oregon, to do a production of Dream Girl. Um, but anyone might might have seen Sarah and I all over the country. We've both been on uh, three different Broadway national tours, my last Broadway national tour being Catch Me If You Can, um, and Sarah was, and I were both on the national tour of Disney Beauty and the Beast together.
1: Oh. Now being an experienced entrepreneur, what are the three things that you would say to uh, to our audience you've learned that you'd like to pass on?
3: Um, the first thing I would like to say is to really use the resources provided by your your city, your town locally. Many universities provide free uh workshops and opportunities to learn more about becoming a growing business and a lot of people don't take advantage of such wonderful and often free opportunities um Something else I would say would be really focus on knowing your clientele uh people tell you all the time what they want and what they would love to see and you have to listen to it. And if you listen to it, you're gonna find success in that because the people are telling you what they want and what they're willing to pay for. And if you're willing to listen to that, you're going to be willing to make money as well. And the third would probably be also to really appreciate your employees no matter what. Uh they are the heartbeat of your organization and they are often the face of your organization. So as long as you continue to treat them the way that you would want to be treated at all times, then you're going to find yourself in a successful arena.
1: Uh, any final thoughts for our, our audience? You know, no, you're just... so articulate in all of this, and I always <laughs> enjoy ha- having you on the program.
3: Well, thank you. No, we're just really excited. We're getting ready to launch a few new tours. Um One of our newest tours is called the Future Foodies Tour, and it's an educational experience for children to come on a tour and learn how desserts are made. Um, Also, some other interesting and scientific reasons and ways that desserts are made. Um, Also, the importance of keeping a balanced diet. So it's a a new, fun educational experience that we're providing, and we're really looking forward to it.
1: Thank you so much for being with us. Today no really uh, uh, really appreciate it and look forward to. Uh, we're going to have you on again next year, because you're one of the prog- uh, one of the uh, businesses we've been following, and uh, uh, when we uh, when you first appeared, it was one of the mo- most uh, listened to programs we've had. So I think, uh, and I think this program will be as well when they find out you're going to be back on. So. Uh, uh, come again uh, this fall, and we'll talk some more.
3: Sounds like a plan. We look forward to it.
1: Thank you. Have a good Thank day.
3: Thank you so much. Thank you, too. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for having us.
1: Our next guest follows a, a recent program we had w- with the wine industry uh, s- spokesperson. Paul Leary is the, the partner in uh, Vintner in Napa Valley he's also a man who's raising additional capital through crowdfunding. Paul, welcome to the program.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: As we ask all of our guests first, tell us a little bit about yourself personally before we get into anything else.
4: Certainly. I live in the Napa Valley and have done so for about 20 years. I live in the town of St. Helena with my wife and family. I've been here, as I say, for 20 years, primarily in the wine industry. Previous to my current venture, I worked with Duckhorn Wine Company in marketing and sales. And prior to that, I was a general manager of a restaurant in the Napa Valley called Travigné, which has been around for about 30 years.
1: Well, what's the name of your current venture?
4: Blackbird Vineyards is the current venture that we're speaking of today. Uh, it's a producer of premium Napa Valley wine. Our first vintage was 2003. Uh, we're just about to harvest the 2003... 2003- excuse me, the 2015 vintage in about two months.
1: But you're also now trying to raise additional capital through uh, what is commonly called crowdfunding. Am I right?
4: That is true. Uh, We are going the crowdfunding route uh, with a platform called CircleUp and basically putting uh, the offering out there for accredited investors. Uh, The purpose of um, the investment raise is to increase our production of uh, the wines, which requires a good amount of capital.
1: Well, what made you decide to try it this way?
4: Absolutely. Uh, there's a broad base of individuals that we can reach beyond our own networks. We can use, of course, our own contacts within the organization, our clients, our customers, our LinkedIn networks, et cetera, But we wanted to be able to put it out a little bit more broadly uh, to accredited personal investors, not necessarily institutions. We don't want to go that route. Uh, so this uh, offered us that sort of platform.
1: So what are you offering of these investors?
4: So it's a Series B offering uh, to come in to us. And it's basically the offering of um, equity stock that uh, we have a full – plan of how we will grow the brand and an exit strategy, you know, could be anywhere from five plus years from now that uh, when we monetize the brand by, you know, potentially selling it to a financial partner or a strategic partner within the industry, they could get a return off that. Of course, you know, the wine industry, there's a lot of uh, great emotional investment that goes on uh, with people and their commitments, not necessarily a software return, but you can get some, some solid returns off wine industry investments.
1: Is there, uh, well, wine connoisseurs uh, and the wine industry in general is one of people with very strong feelings and very uh, emotional feelings. Is that entering into their decision-making, do you think? Absolutely. I think you touch on a really
4: critical point. Wine to people is highly personal and highly emotional. And in that regard, it's also very tangible, People can see, feel, and literally taste the product, so it's a consumer package good in its essence. so when you get potential investors interested, they know they can be a part of something that they can you know talk with their friends about network or you know bring to their friends and be proud as an investor of a Napa Valley winery, specifically Blackbird Vineyards
1: well, but you have to be a qualified investor in order to do this. And, and what is a qualified investor?
4: You know there's an accreditation that the circle up platform does that just has to do with you know your income level uh your ability to understand risk uh with these sort of investments. It's nothing outside the ordinary of how any uh potential investor would consider an option like this
1: but, but in in your case you 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 have something very tangible. But also, something that takes years to mature you harvest a crop in two months, but you're really not going to sell that for some period of time. Is that enter into their equation, and is also that something that people want?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. The beauty of this series b raise right now is that we've been doing business for coming up on ten years, so we have existing sales channels. Uh, we have existing product in the market, and the pipeline of product development, as you say, is long. It can be anywhere from six months for a rosé or white wine up to two years, you know, to bring a product to market from its from its harvest date. So there is that reality. There are long production uh, cycles, but the beauty of the Blackbird Vineyards brand is that we already have a lot of those established channels and a phenomenal. Pipeline of product over the next number of years to offer our clients um, and talk with uh, investors about.
1: What made you decide to, to uh, at this point, to go and uh, add cap, uh, capital at this point rather than some other point in your uh, process?
4: Certainly, we, we had a Series B round, or pardon me, a Series A round a few years back. And the Series B round, you know, as we look at trying to grow uh, our inventory, there's this, there's this tipping point where the business throws off uh, the right amount of cash to fund that production. We're just prior to that tipping point. Uh, so we need that capital to be able to grow the right products at the right quality levels. We believe uh, there's a tremendous uh, demand roadmap for out there with us as it relates to our current organic sales channels, and then a couple of partnerships uh, that we're bringing to fruition. With those partnerships specifically, um, there's going to be a need for more of our wine in the marketplace, hence the need for capital.
1: If you had to give, you've been in business uh, 10 years, you've been uh, fairly successful at it. What are the three lessons you've learned in those 10 years?
4: I think the first uh, one is to understand your specialty. What is your product? Who is your market? Do you understand your competition? So basic market intelligence. Second, really understand your customer. Who are they? Why do they buy your product? And how are you taking care of them and making them a loyal client? Because wine, as you mentioned earlier, is a very emotional product and a chance for people to really become attracted to the brand and an ambassador for the brand so really understand your customer and take care of them and third i would just say in our product in particular never uh, skimp on quality always focus on quality and know that this is a lifelong um, journey and a relationship that you really want to create with your client that requires that consistency year after year
1: if people want to learn more about your product and and your series B. Round, how did they do it?
4: The best way is uh, the Blackbird website is blackbirdvineyards.com. And for the Series B Round, the crowdfunding platform is CircleUp. So that's circleup.com. You could type in our brand, and then it will lead you through a process to become a registered and credited investor. And then you will be on the platform, and you can be um, involved in the Blackbird deal room where you can learn more about our brand and its offering.
1: I'm uh, really glad you came and joined us today. Uh you're the first guest we've had in our two years that uh is in the situation you are. But we'd love for you to come back in the fall and tell us how things worked out.
4: I would love to do that and look forward to it.
1: Well, thank you again. My pleasure. Our next guest, Ann Miller, was on our very first program. Uh, And one thing about Ann, I've never talked with her that I haven't learned something. Ann, welcome to the program.
0: Hi, Don. Thanks to be here. Great to be here, rather.
1: Well, it's great to have you back. You know, it's hard to imagine it's over two years since you you last appeared. (laughs) And that's my problem, not yours.
0: Time flies.
1: (laughs) When you're having fun.
0: Lots
1: exactly a lot's happened to you in those two years, all most of them for the good. Uh, right,
0: right, right. Well uh, uh
1: tell us a little bit about yourself personally before we I know a lot about you, but our audience uh probably forgot. But uh please tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Okay. Uh I'm basically your presentation lady. I have always been fascinated by the communication process. I started out as an English teacher, always wanted to act, and that's certainly one type of communication. And then after selling and being on odd jobs on Wall Street and in the media business, I got into the training industry where I'm helping people develop their skills so they get the results they want. Again, direct communication kind of endeavor, and it's something I'm fascinated with, and I'm always happy to help people get what they want.
1: Well, you you certainly helped me in the past, so uh, I'm glad you're on the program. I'd like today to talk about um, small business. uh, Often concentrate on talking with their customers and forget their employees. Uh, But what I'd like to talk about in general: what are the principles of communication that uh, that small business owner? Fifty-nine percent of our audience are presidents and/or uh owners, and what can they do to improve their communication with both their staff and in fact to unify it because we had earlier on the program uh two people talking about uh unifying staff uh to encourage them to focus on what the company wants to do so how what are some of the tips that you've learned over the uh your time that uh, our audience might be able to apply.
0: Well, I think more ev- more than ever today, transparency is really important, particularly with the millennial generation and with all the electronic, uh, you know, social media. Uh, people really resent when they don't know what's going on. So while I think it's always been true that management that communicates with the teams and the and the workforce has been a good thing. I think it's really important today to be honest with people, to have opportunities for them. Well, a couple of opportunities. One is for senior management to interact on some regular basis with their employees or in the factory or in the stores or wherever they may be. They need to be visible. They need to be seen. They need to be listening to them to find out what they're interested in and what's important to them, particularly if they have a lot of millennials on their team because millennials like to talk and feel like they're a part of something. So I think being visible and being open to hearing other people is important. I also think that giving people an opportunity for collaboration has become increasingly popular and proven to be highly effective. So that your office is set up not in isolated cubicles, but there are areas where people can congregate and swap ideas informally, or there's a coffee kitchen center <laughs> where people can get together and talk, and it's not frowned upon. It's understood that's good use of time. One of my accounts, and I'm sure most of us can't do this, but one of my accounts even has a bar in their facility. It's a dot-com company, and uh, there's happy hour you know, after a certain hour, uh, again, it, it, people work better when they feel they're in an environment that's collaborative and working together. So I would say those are two things, which is to be visible and to interact with people and to create both physically and culturally the idea that collaboration and communication is open for everybody.
1: I think that's really important. You know, uh, with all the restrictions about sm- smoking, there used to be that the smoking dock was a place where information got exchanged. But that's yeah, there's not no happening. more smoking dock.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's not happen-
1: happening anymore. No, no, no. Also, we're seeing a trend to more uh, to more open spaces, uh, places where people have uh, just desks and then they have uh, open spaces. Uh, do you think that's a, um, improving communications amongst
3: employees?
0: Well, I think I, th- I think I'm in favor of spaces where people can congregate. But uh, people I talk to who work in these cubicles on top of each other, they do complain that they find it hard to concentrate. You know, it's just there's no privacy. There's you hear what other people are saying. So that's the downside of that. So I think there has to be a happy balance there. I understand that. You know a lot of people are on inside sales now, and it's just rows of people making phone calls. but there needs to be a break from that as well, where they can go off and and not have to just listen to everybody next to them
1: well, you know uh, one of the things that i found found talking to small businesses is that the last four year or five years with in this uh, recessionary period where many companies were uh, were at the point of closing doors there was a great deal of uh, tension build up uh and a lot of it has not dissipated how do you deal with situations like that
0: I'm sorry i missed the word you said there's a lot of what that has been built up
1: a lot of uh, anger frustration and fear has been uh, because uh, companies were on the brink of failing uh, particularly mm-hmm. smaller companies and uh, oftentimes management was not communicating with employees and and also in bigger companies there's been tremendous flattening of the uh, uh, uh layers of management and all of this right. has led to kind of a um a fear mentality within companies uh how do you deal with a situation like that well we
0: i go ahead. Th- i think there're two things there i mean nobody has a secure job anymore. You know, the 30 years in the watch are gone. And so I think everyone has a healthy awareness that they're not indispensable. And so people really do have that lingering fear. And it's a lot of the reason why so many people don't take vacations and don't take time off because they don't want to be seen as a lesser contributor, which is really sad. I mean, very, very sad. On the other hand, I think the way you minimize fear and anxiety is to, A, be transparent in what's going on in the company, and, two, to demonstrate to employees how they are valued. And by that, I mean uh, training them, giving them training, saying, hey, we recognize that you're important and we're making an investment in you, Uh, getting them to, you know, take different jobs if that's possible in a company so that they see that they're, being developed. Um, So anything that a company can do to make somebody feel they are valued can balance that reality that people can be let go at any time. Uh, I think the best companies have always invested in their people. And even if it's a small company and they don't have tons of money, just allowing someone to take a course or allowing someone to attend a conference. And you can leverage that. Uh, expense because the person comes back from the conference and can have a meeting and share what was learned there, which helps the entire company. Um, I think being able to give people some time off when they're, you know, kids or people are sick. Now I know that goes into a whole other field of how long and all of that, but just being human about things. Um, I know um, someone who worked for a company, it's a consulting company. And this woman went on her honeymoon. I mean, she got married and went on a honeymoon, and on the second day of the honeymoon, she got an email that says, you have to call me. You know, this is not exactly designed to develop loyalty and good feelings towards management. Such an insensitivity there.
3: So I think, you know, being human
0: and also demonstrating value.
1: Hmm. Well, you know, my my sister-in-law suffered... Catastrophic uh, cancer incident, and her company bent over backwards to uh, really accommodate her. And when she lost uh, part of her tongue and had an inability to uh, speak on the phone anymore, they created a job for her where she didn't have to talk on the phone. And I thought that w- that was a magnificent, magnificent gesture on their part.
3: Right.
1: But you don't yeah, hear tonight- about. It.
0: No, I think that's probably more the exception than the rule. Although, in a way, small companies have more flexibility around that, and sometimes in a way they don't. I mean, everybody in a small company is important. So if one person's not there, it's costly in terms of time and and money. On the other hand, a small company can also be nicer than a large company that has very strict policies that they impose across the board. So it really depends team. on the individual company.
1: Well, you know, you've taught me so many uh good communication techniques over the years. Could you share one or two uh with our audience? You've done, you know, you, you certainly helped me and uh, mm-hmm. uh, my staff on occasion. Um, how how do you communicate some of these positive reinforcements?
0: Well, we I I'll about? tell you what I, I am very much in favor of, recognizing that we live in an over-communicated world where so much information is coming at people all the time, recognizing that people have limited bandwidth to process things, recognizing that people are more inclined to keep doing what they are doing rather than change. Change is risky. I think that people today who want to be good communicators really have to master the art of metaphor. Uh, Because metaphors have a way of framing an issue quickly, vividly, dramatically, and the person gets it right away. I was struck by that this week. Um, I don't know if you saw the eulogy that Obama gave at the church in South Carolina. Did you happen to catch that?
1: No, Uh, it's really
0: worth. It's it's a beautiful speech, and it's worth watching. And. I, I forget what exactly he said, but he was it, it towards the end he was setting up contrasts about some uh, the future doesn't have to be a barricade to something you don't have to shield yourself he He set up these metaphors of what society uh, what America could be that really, really rang true and when you when he finished speaking, you really felt committed to a renewed sense of of community and and potential for racial harmony. Not that it's going to be so easy, but that you felt that it could be done. So, as I say, just Obama's use of it reminded me of that. But in business, in business, how you see yourself is so important. If you have an employee meeting and you tell them that you are you know maybe you're a small company and you've had some setbacks, but now things are changing for the better and just say we are a phoenix, like the Phoenix rising from the ashes. that's a very strong image and If you had little phoenix pictures of phoenixes around and handed them out, I mean you could instill all kinds of of optimism in people and commitment to a new future just by using that metaphor if you are trying to um sell something to someone and they say, well, you know, we're already using a service or a product like yours, you could argue till you're blue in the face that yours is better, but better never sells because they're happy with what they have. But if you can say, yes, you're right, Um, we are in the same industry, but let me ask you something. Uh, Do you play tennis or golf? Most people will be familiar with one or the other. And if they say, let's say, tennis, you can say, you know, when you play tennis, you can have a very good stro- a very strong forehand, but when you have a good backhand, you're even better in the game. And that's what we're saying here. The current supplier that you're using is your forehand. Add us to your list of recommended vendors. Make us your backhand, because together we will help you grow much more effectively in your market. Now, if someone plays tennis, That analogy actually makes sense because you are better when you have a strong backhand. And so, you know, it's a way to uh, make somebody see something a little differently and get it to your point of view.
1: That's a tremendous – I'm going to use that. That's a tremendous
0: uh, Yes. uh, Once you get your metaphors, get the metaphor habit, it's really hard to kick (laughs) – and you find it works all the time. I'm just give you. Do we have time for one more example?
1: Oh, we have all the time in the world when it comes to you.
0: Oh, you're a sweetheart. I have a friend who sells training, and what she does is she represents a lot of large companies. So she can hand she can give you, you know, whether you need uh, leadership training or uh, compliance training or sales training or management. Supervise. She's got it all because she has all these different companies. And, but when people never under, understand that model, because it's not their world. So whatever industry she's calling on, she just creates a metaphor for them. So, for example, if she's calling on someone in the fashion industry, she'll say, this is what we do. She's basically, we're like stylists. We pull together all the uh, items you need to really you know, make your ad work, in this case to make your people more... Uh, productive. Now, people who are in the fashion industry, they understand styling, and they understand what a stylist does. So it's very easy for them to suddenly get what she's talking about. But when she calls on the pharmaceutical industry, she can't use the stylist analogy. So she says, look, we're like a doctor. We come in, we diagnose what's going on, and then we pull in the medicines, remedies, and prescriptions that you need for this particular leadership challenge. And because they understand medical terms, they get it. So it's just that simple. But what's not simple is is thinking, okay, what can I compare this situation to so that I can get them to literally see the truth of what I'm saying? So metaphors and analogies are just extraordinarily powerful ways to communicate in today's world. And I encourage everyone to do it. Mm.
3: Well, you
1: know, uh, I want to ask you one more question, because you were the first person that, that talked to me about telling a story as a way mm-hmm. of of, uh, of communicating. Now it's a buzzword throughout it, uh, everything I get. There's always, quote, a story behind it.
0: Mm-hmm. But,
1: uh, could you expand a little bit and explain what you meant? Because I, uh, I credit you with one of the first to understand how important a story can be in the in the communication process.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that stories used as metaphors are terrific. But story, I, I've seen some storytelling stuff online, and I find they get very long-winded. I think it has to be short and sweet and makes a point. So, for example, uh, example, example uh, I heard someone speak years ago to a marketing group, and his, he was going to tell them that uh, what they were doing was wrong, and he wanted to change the way marketing was being handled. And so he started out by saying, you know, if he started out by saying, look, you guys are all wrong, listen to me, you know he would have lost them. So he started out with a little story. And he said, as he was flying into New York that day, he sat next to a woman with a really large ring on her middle finger. It was extraordinary. And he doesn't usually talk to people, but he turned to her and said, that's quite a ring on your finger. And she said, yes, it's my wedding band. And he said, your wedding band, it's on the wrong finger. And she said, yeah, I married the wrong guy. And, of course, everybody (laughs) laughed. And he (laughs) said, I wonder if we, as an industry, are not married to the wrong guy, the wrong strategies. I think we are, and I think we need to change, and this is what I think we should do. He had them. He had them. Because he relaxed them with that little anecdote. Now, whether that really happened to him or not, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great little story. I'm not in favor of jokes, for the sake of jokes. But to get on a long-winded story, I think at least in my world, doesn't work very well. And that could just be because I'm one of your basic, always busy New Yorkers. But I always think that people are more interested in themselves and their stories than they are in you and your stories. It's like, whose pictures do you want to see of kids? Your, your kids' pictures or pictures of someone else's kids? <laughs> so, But stories and, and uh, analogies, look, you had Aesop's Fables, Christ Told Stories, Um, Yes, they work, but they have to be crafted, they have to be short, and most important, they have to be relevant to the point you are making.
1: Uh, If people, you have a website and a wonderful newsletter, how do they find both?
0: Okay. Well, I would recommend three things. One is, I wrote a book on how to use metaphors in business to handle objections, to talk to groups, to position your product. It's a business book. It's not a literary book. It's a business book that shows people how to use the power of metaphors to sell and persuade. And that you can find on my website or on Amazon. And it's called The Tall Lady with the Iceberg. And the website is www.annemiller.com. And Ann is spelled with an E com. and you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter and I do a monthly metaphor minute newsletter which is also free for people who like to read about these things and get ideas about how other people in business use metaphors to sell persuade and influence I invite all your listeners to sign up
1: well I, I do too because it is an absolute I, I read it every month I, uh, whenever I see your your name, I read it. Um if, oh, you're if, sweet. If, thank you. No, if people think I like you, they're they're right because I learn. I, <laughs> I, I always learn something from you. And thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, My it, pleasure, it a, Don. Re- thank you. Ha- have a good rest of the summer, and we'll hopefully talk in the fall.
0: Okay. Great. You too. Bye bye.
1: Bye bye. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience and profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash digest If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you would like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you, and have a good day.